0: Well, if you've ever had a a litter of kittens, we've had several of them over the years, or maybe a, a litter of puppies, or you've seen a gaggle of geese, you'll observe something common between all those different species, and that is that the little ones always depend on the bigger ones. The bigger ones don't depend on the little ones. It's the other way around. Vulnerable beings need bigger beings to protect them. The same with our children. The smaller the child, the more vulnerable. And as they grow and mature and become adults, then they take responsibility to care for the smaller ones around them. The cure for a vulnerable newborn kitten is an attentive mother cat. The cure for a vulnerable gosling is an aggressive mother goose. The cure for a vulnerable child is a protective and comforting parent. And folks, the cure for a fearful, vulnerable believer is the ever-present God. He really is the source of our comfort and our hope. In the book of Haggai, which we've been studying now for three or four weeks, Haggai the prophet came to the people of Israel after they had spent almost 70 years in captivity in in Babylon. They had re-entered their Old stomping grounds, the promised land, the walls of the great city of Jerusalem were in ruins. The temple had been virtually knocked down. there had been some previous attempts to rebuild it, which were unsuccessful. The people were busy building their paneled houses and sort of getting their vineyards planted. And God came to them and said, um, notice my temple over there? Notice you haven't started any work on it. I want you to get at it. I want you to rebuild the temple. This is the place where my glory dwells. This is the place where I want to to be worshipped. And so in Haggai chapter 1, the people responded very quickly. They sort of dropped everything, and they started rebuilding the temple. Well, now we're in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, as Haggai continues to call the people to consecrate themselves to the work of the Lord, and as he commends them for their obedience Nevertheless, there were several obstacles. You can imagine, there were several obstacles that they faced as they tried to be faithful to God. The workload was huge. This was a monumentous process. They didn't have cranes and modern equipment. This was handwork. Have you ever noticed, by the way, some of the old ruins in Rome or around the Mediterranean, even castles in in England? You're thinking, okay, these are impressive structures but they, they built these by hand with, they chiseled the, the stones out of the rock with hand tools and they raised them into place with beams and ropes. I mean, it was a pretty impressive process. And you can imagine thinking, is this going to ever be finished? And then at the same time, they had the threat of the enemies, the, the nations around them that didn't want Israel to prosper the sheer magnitude of looking even past the temple and realizing we still have to rebuild an entire nation here. The whole place has been in ruins for decades. So into all these obstacles, God equips his people to work fearlessly and in his strength. How does he do that? Well, this is the subject of Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, which is the biblical text we're going to study together. And here we have the Lord of faith, the faithful Lord, the Lord of covenant, protecting his people, but at the same time threatening to shake the nations around Israel who would try to thwart their efforts. So, as we read this text, what I would like you to do is not just think about the ancient circumstances, but I'd like you to translate their circumstances into the present and consider the challenges and obstacles that we have as we look out at a ruined nation, a godless nation. A nation that claims to believe in the supremacy of God, but clearly does not. A nation that is increasingly statist and totalitarian and marked by tyranny. A nation where many people that we would have considered faithful believers have have walked away and are not being faithful to the high calling of God. So as we look at the sheer magnitude of pushing back against the monster of the state, the monster of demonic attack, The monster of totalitarianism. I think there's going to be an encouraging message here for us to consider. So Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Let me read it for you. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak. So time and time again, As Haggai delivers a new sermon, he always identifies the the civil magistrate and he identifies what we would call the religious magistrate, the high priest and the rightful heir to the throne. In other words, the whole nation's being called to be part of this. And then to all the remnant of the people and say, so here's the message. Who is left among you who saw this house, meaning this temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. For nearly a month now, the people had been hard at work repurposing stones, clearing rubble, working on a layout, and getting their equipment in place. they had responded to the call. They were obeying God. They were doing what God asked them to do. But you know what? It's one thing to get people serving, it's another thing to give them sustaining strength. I think many of us understand that in our own spiritual lives. It's one thing to say, Lord, I'm going to take a stand for you, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to obey. And then a month goes by, or a year goes by, or 10 years goes by, and it's like, oh, how how much longer am I supposed to do this? It's one thing to get people to obey, but how do we find sustaining strength? Susie and I were talking about an observation we've made in 30-some-odd years of ministry, and that is that oftentimes In the life of churches, we have the young people sort of being trained up to do ministry, and by the time they hit their 30s, they're in full stride, and they're going strong, and they they serve the Lord strong throughout their 30s, and they serve the Lord strong throughout their, their 40s, and start to get into their 50s, and they start to waver a little bit, start to slow down a little bit, and I could tell you story after story of Christians who have essentially checked out In their 50s, 60s, and 70s, it's like, (laughs) let someone else do the work. I mean, I love what you guys are doing, but I'm not participating anymore. I've done my time. But there's no retirement, folks, from ministry. There's no retirement. When we obey, we must also find a way of sustaining our strength so we can serve the Lord long term. There's lots of sprinters that will show up to the race, but it's the marathon runners that are really impressive. It's those that stick it out. The Christian life isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. And there are obstacles that we face just like the ancients face. The mental games we play, the questions we ask. Will my efforts amount to anything? Am I going to bear any fruit out of this or am I wasting my time? Will I have the strength to endure? I'm afraid. Where's all this leading? I feel kind of anxious. Can you relate to these obstacles? I think you probably can. Live in the same world as I do. So what truths and resources keep us working? How do we Find and maintain sustaining strength for the long haul. I mean, sure, God might come and take us back tomorrow. Or we might have 40 more years to endure. So how do we find sustaining strength? What truths and what resources keep us working? Well, if you dissect Haggai's message, you find several answers to that question. The first answer is, is to remember the former things. Look at verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He's speaking to the seniors. Those who might have been young children or teenagers when they were dragged off into Babylon in 586 BC. He asks another question. How do you see it now? It's not looking so great, right? <clears throat> he asks another question. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Doesn't look like much here, does it? Are you a little bit discouraged? You look at everything that has to be accomplished. You look at all the the ruin and the sin and the wickedness around you, and you're like, where do we start? You feel like you're clearing away the rubble of a skyscraper with a little plastic kid shovel. This is impossible we were called to remember the former things, the elders among the people would have remembered the former glory of Solomon's temple. They would have remembered that. would have been etched into their, into their minds. They remember the gold plating, the towering columns, the smells of the incense, the outer courts. They would have remembered that. And it was a reminder to them of what God had previously done. And if God did it then, he can do it now. Now, when we think back upon what God has done in the past, there's sort of two dynamics for us to be aware of. One is, it could work against us. As we think about what God used to do, we can find ourselves sort of thinking about the glory days. Well, it used to be so great. Remember back in 2019, we had freedom used to be so great back then. We think back further. Remember the Great Awakening when biblical Christianity swept across North America and there were revivals. Wow, wouldn't it be nice to live then? We we remember the, the Reformation some 500 years ago, how the church was revived and reclaimed the gospel. We can think back And observe what God has done and it can work against us. If our mindset is, well, we're never going to be able to accomplish that. We're never going to be able to accomplish what Solomon accomplished. Or what the reformers accomplished. Or what Wesley or what Edwards accomplished. We're we're never going to return to to any sort of normal. We might as well just give up. Or it can work for us. Which is what it's supposed to do. We can think, you know what, if if God was faithful then, then he'll be faithful now. In fact, don't we sing that occasionally? Yeah, we do. In this song called Faithful Now, I clipped out a a verse for you just to remind you of this song that we sometimes sing, a vertical worship song. Here's what it says. Because you make mountains move, you make giants fall, sing it out, You use songs of praise to break prison walls, to shake prison walls. I will speak to my fear. Well, I will preach to my doubt that you were faithful then, you'll be faithful now. Our lives, we need to remember, are very, very short. And when we compare history to our lives, we're like, that was a long, long, long time ago, wasn't it? No, to God, it was just, a second or two ago. The Reformation was just a second or two ago. Solomon's temple was just a second or two ago. To God, this is nothing. And because God was faithful then, he will be faithful now. So when we consider the tasks that lie ahead, and the tasks, I will admit, from a human perspective, are monumentous. You know what we need in our culture? A new Reformation, capital N, capital R not just to get out of the current lockdowns. We need a reformation of culture or for Jesus just to come back. We want him to come back, but if he doesn't come back, we're going to press for a new reformation. We need a cultural reformation, lock, stock, and barrel, and education and medicine and economics in the church. We need to literally reinvent our country. And it's probably not going to happen in 20 years. It's a long-term project. And it can seem overwhelming. To try to reassert the glory and majesty of God over a ruined nation like Canada? It's like, pff, you might as well just give up. Find an island to live on. But when we look back to what God has done and are reminded of his faithfulness so, so far in history, It's supposed to encourage us. We study history primarily because it is his story. We study history because it is a record of the rebellion of mankind, the judgment of God, the repentance of mankind, the forgiveness of God, and restoration. That's why we study history. His faithfulness, his past victories, are written all across the timeline of human history from creation till the present. So just remember that. Think big. Think beyond the moment that the God who was faithful then is faithful now. Secondly, this is the second big truth, we're called to be strong, and the reason why we can be strong is because God is with us. He really is. In the fourth verse, he calls the people to be strong. As soon as I read that, I thought, this sounds an awful lot like Joshua chapter one. Remember Joshua chapter one, is the people had wandered around for 40 years. Look at the parallels, wandered around for 40 years in their own exile in Sinai because of their rebellion. And now it was like, I'm sending you into the promised land to chase out the giants, to chase out the, I was gonna say cannibals, Canaanites, (laughs) Maybe some of them were cannibals. But to chase out the Canaanites and to establish a new nation from scratch. And they were afraid. When they crossed from Moab, crossed the Jordan to Israel, they were afraid. God says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And the same language is used having returned from a 70-year exile, again, because of their unfaithfulness, It's like a a restart. Sinai, cross the Jordan, be strong. Babylon, you're back in the land. It seems monumentous, be strong. Now is a fresh start. Now the question is, how do we be strong? I want to be very practical. How do we be strong? You know, in in and of ourselves, humans try to come up with all sorts of Play play mental games, engage in certain activities to strengthen themselves. It's like I'm just going to psych myself up, just to psych myself up. Kind of like a guy psyching himself up to watch a romance movie with his wife. It's like (laughs) just going to choose to like it. Okay, psych myself up. Is that the source of our strength? Some sort of a Overcoming intellectual obstacles, just sort of willing ourselves into strength? Or do we literally go out and start pumping iron? Just pump iron. Is is it like a physical strength? You know, if I can pump enough iron and fit into those tights and look pretty hot, maybe get the Instagram pictures flowing, get a few likes going on, is that the kind of strength? That we're being called to exercise or is it some sort of an eastern thing you know just empty your mind just deny your pain and suffering just pretend it doesn't exist is that the kind of be strong that we're being called to here no it's not about psyching yourself up getting physically ripped going out and buying your guns That's not the kind of strength that's being spoken of here. The kind of strength being spoken of here is not self-induced. It's God-supplied. It's not self-induced. It doesn't come from you. It comes from without. But it's a gift that God is prepared to give to you. By the way, the same language appears in the Gospels. Here in the text, it says, Work, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you. When Jesus was manifested to his disciples, they're in a boat, it's a little stormy out. All of a sudden he's out walking on water, which is pretty freaky and fascinating and wonderful all at once. And they're scared to death. He says to them as well, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. What's the source of fearlessness? His presence, it is I, I'm here. Not, hey, don't worry, you're not going to get hurt. Don't worry, the storm's going to be done in a minute and a half. You want to be fearless? Acknowledge that I'm here with you. God is with you. This is the source of fearlessness. His presence, it's God's presence. And we understand this by faith to be so true. Experientially, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for longer than a few weeks, you've experienced this in your own life, I'm certain of it. Somehow, Christ's presence invites faith. It ignites courage. And it has an amazing way of instilling comfort. The presence of Christ. Not necessarily a quick fix. Not necessarily a strategy plan. The presence of Christ operating in your life. The acknowledgment that he is with you. That he is enough. Is the source of our strength. More specifically, we can break this out into four four sub-truths that help us to see how we can be strong because God is with us. First of all, we have a God of covenant. If you look at verse 5, we're reminded that God's covenant never fails. One of the blessings of God's presence is that his presence is covenantal. He declares to the people of God, according to the covenant that I've made with you. You know, we're also under a covenant. You know what a covenant is? It's an agreement. Who paid for the agreement? Christ paid for the agreement with his own blood. Jesus shed his blood to establish a covenant with us. After my sermon today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to remind ourselves of a covenant that was made with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in an agreement with him. And he has secured that agreement through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the time that this was written, there were a couple covenants that the people of God had experienced. There was the Abrahamic covenant, sort of the original covenant, specific to the nation of Israel. Then there was the Mosaic covenant, delivered through Moses. Now, it's interesting that out of those two covenants, Haggai refers to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with them when they were delivered out of Egypt. And again, in keeping with what we previous read, I think it's because Haggai wants the people of God to make all these connections in the moment to this super significant event that had taken place in the Egyptian exile, in the, Egyptian, uh, exile, uh, in the, in the Egy- Egyptian exodus. So they they... They had this covenant delivered through Moses. They had been brought out of slavery and captivity. They then wandered for 70 years. They then had to cross the Jordan and get ready to take the land. And the parallels between those challenges and the ones they currently found themselves in were amazingly similar. So to help them to see the, the, the God's blessings in the past, God's deliverance in the, deliverance in the past, He reminds them, in verse 5, of the covenant that God had made with them through Moses to deliver them from the Egyptians, to deliver them ultimately from exile, and to help them to take this land hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And if he did it then, if he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. And then, of course, we need to take the next step. And remember that if God was faithful in returning them to the land of Judah after the Babylonian captivity, then he will remain equally faithful to his new covenant people now. So we remember covenant. We also remember and take full advantage of the gift of his spirit. Verse 5 also refers to the spirit. This is the spirit that removes all fear. The Bible declares, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. How do I overcome fear? Well, in part by reminding ourselves of the gift of the Spirit of God. How much more, as post Pentecostal believers, can we find comfort and confidence in the presence of the Holy Spirit? Under the Old Covenant, if you have to study all the prepositions, the spatial words, those little spatial words in, under, through, around, out, upon, all those little spatial words, those positional words, we call them in English prepositions. Under the old covenant, you never see in or into when it comes to the Holy Spirit's work in a believer. Because at that point, they weren't indwelt. The Spirit would come upon and give them power. He would come upon Samson. He would come upon Saul. He would come upon David. He would give them power. He was always with them. God is omnipresent. But he hadn't yet indwelt them. But at Pentecost, the Spirit of God indwelt the church and continues to indwell the church. So we have a redemptive historical advantage to the old covenant believers. And that we have a spirit too, the same spirit, but that spirit doesn't just remain in our midst, he remains in us. And he leads us into truth and he convicts us of sin and he provides us with the power and the energy that we need to endure Through suffering, trial, tribulation, and torment. You know, there's certain things you probably should never buy from the dollar store. No offense, but you probably shouldn't buy toilet paper from the dollar store. You probably shouldn't buy hand tools from the dollar store. You probably shouldn't buy toys from the dollar store. There's some good things to buy at the dollar store, you don't buy these things. But perhaps among the worst things you can buy from the dollar store are batteries. Don't buy batteries from the dollar store. You know those batteries that have these powerful names on them like Sunbeam? <laughs> or Super Extra? And you buy them, you're like, oh, they're, they're way cheaper than Duracell or Energizer and you go to turn your battery, your, you know, your flashlight on and five minutes later you're walking in the dark again? If you're going to buy a battery. You buy Duracells, or you buy energizers. You buy a name brand. You don't buy batteries from the dollar store. You will be sorely disappointed. You're just filling the landfill up a little quicker with a lot of this dollar store junk. Well, serving in the flesh is a lot like a dollar store battery. It'll, it'll get you a few steps forward, but it doesn't last. It doesn't last. Religion doesn't last. It's like a dollar store battery. It moves you forward a little bit. Maybe you clean up your act a bit because you're super religious. But it has no sustaining power. It's God's spirit operating through us that empowers us for long-term sustaining ministry. The Holy Spirit is God's Duracell, God's energizer, energizer Max that allows us to serve long-term until the Lord comes back and takes us home. So we pray in the Spirit. We worship in the Spirit. We listen to the Spirit. As we study God's Word, the Spirit is moving. He's nudging. He's whispering. He's yelling. He's convicting. He's encouraging. He's correcting. He's giving us insight. We listen to the Spirit of God, and that helps to sustain us long-term in ministry. No ministry plan, no ministry strategy is ever sustainable without the Holy Spirit of God working operatively through his people. And this is one of the blessings of God's presence. God's presence also clarifies for us the future. When God is with us, the future is clear. There's no ambiguity. Look at verses six and seven. God says to his people, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. By the way, a little while to God might seem like a long while to us. But through the eyes of faith, it's a little while to God. Just a little while. He goes on to say, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory. It's very definitive here. He doesn't say, I might. kind of thinking about it. I'm fairly certain I will. No, he says, I will. And if God says it, it's true. He reminds us that God's enemies will ultimately be punished. That blessings will flow. The temple will rebuild. God, in other words, will be worshipped. You can create all the fakes that you want. All the fake gods, the fake religions, the fake forms of Christianity. Carve all the altars Follow all the ideologies. It almost seems like God's losing, doesn't it? He's not going to lose. God will secure glory to himself. He will. And it's going to happen in a little while in the mind of God. Likewise, our enemies will be punished. Likewise, we will be vindicated. Likewise, God's blessings will flow and frankly already are flowing. And God's glory will be and is being revealed. Do you believe that? Sometimes as I discuss the current events of our world with other Christians, they'll ask me questions like, hey, what's your take on the future? Like, what what do you think is going to happen next? And on one hand, I, I more or less know because you don't have to be a prophet to sort of assess and analyze trends to sort of, plot a line, see the trajectory of culture to look at people's past behaviors and to take a pretty good guess on what they're going to be probably doing next month or the year after. So you have sort of a general sense of where things are going if you understand human nature and cultural trends, which are sort of one and the same in many respects. But the specifics of this life are unknown to us. The specifics, the specific details of who's going to win the next election and what the next big event's going to be and, and what the next tyrannical law is going to be and when the next persecution's going to come. We don't know those details. But we do know the end of the story. We know that ultimately God wins. And that's why I've said many times, the reason why we know we will win is because we already know God has won. We know that. And this is a wonderful thing. The future is clear to us here and in many other passages in the scripture, God speaks similar language. He will judge the nations. They will submit to him. God's people will be blessed and he will receive glory. There's no question about that. There's no question about that at all. And so while the particulars of God's plan are not known to us, this is why we walk by faith, not by sight. And the big picture, we know exactly what's going to happen in the future. And so that gives us sustaining strength. I would encourage you to think about that. I, I know many of you have probably heard statements like that made by preachers or you've arrived at conclusions like that in your study of scripture in the course of your Christian journey. But it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to apply it in the moment. And we need more Christians combating evil, combating lies, but not allowing themselves to get discouraged, not allowing themselves to fall into despair. Well, why would, why would we fall into despair? We know, we know how this all ends. There's no reason for us to be in despair. We're not going to sit in our hands and say nothing and do nothing. We're not going to be passive and complicit and the evil of our world. But discouragement's a thing of the past. Make it so in your life. Despair is a thing of the past. Make it so in your life. You don't need to get up every morning afraid and anxious. Oh, it's going to happen today. Through the eyes of faith, God is in control, folks. This is a great time to be a Christian. It's a wonderful time to be a Christian. God is sanctifying us. People are getting saved. We know how this all ends. This is a great time to be a Christian. False religions don't have that insight, but followers of Christ do. And then finally, speaking again of his, his presence, one of the greatest gifts we have is that his peace sustains us. The tail end of this passage we've read today, he makes this statement. In this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You probably noticed the repeated reference to the Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. Now you know this is Haggai's favorite description of God. The Lord of the armies. The Lord of infinite resources, in other words. By the way, when it says God has armies or he's the Lord of hosts, it doesn't mean that he actually needs them. It's not like he's counting his soldiers. Oh, I wonder if I can take Satan on. I only have a million. I better find a million more. God, is. it's not like he needs them, but the fact that he commands armies is, is an amazing thing. It reminds us of how powerful God is. He is the Lord of hosts. It's, it's meant to be like, oh, this, he, he's got a lot of heavenly warriors on his side. That's, that's the, the language of this. So he, he repeats his favorite name for God, Peace that reminds them that they would be returned to the promised land. Peace that reminds us that we have a sure spot reserved for us in Christ's eternal kingdom. And it's secured for us through his presence. Jesus in Isaiah is actually called the Prince of Peace. Because while he brings many other blessings, like love and mercy and justice, ultimately he brings peace. And that's what we're all looking forward to. So we can steady our minds. We need to steady our minds. I would encourage you to steady your mind. Be sober-minded. So very practically, there's a lot of weird things going on out there. You know that, right? A lot of weird things. A lot of concerning things. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you are on the cusp of losing your jobs. Some of you are concerned about what's next for your children. Some of you are really concerned about these laws, like Bill C-4 and Bill C-7 that have been passed in our country. Some of you are concerned about the closed borders and how many churches are shut down, and all these sorts of things. And this can kind of clutter up your mind and you get all worked up and frantic and anxious and stressed out about it. Okay, well, be concerned about these things in the sense that you want to be proactive, you want to respond to them, you want to pray for solutions, you want to speak out against bad stuff happening in our world. But steady your mind. Steady your mind on truth. Your emotions, a lot of people don't understand this, your emotions are the direct byproduct of your thinking. It's not the other way around. People often have this notion that you think with your heart. No, you don't. You think with your brain. And if there's truth in your mind, it'll settle your heart. If there's lies in your mind, it'll upset your heart. The solution to anxiety, panic, depression, despair, is truth. The truth of God's word understood and appropriated applied, put into practice, we steady our minds on these things. We're like, I believe these truths to be true. Peace. I have peace. I believe these things to be true. So I have peace. You know, there's a lot of discussion in our culture about how to fix our problems. And for some, they spent a lot of time looking for political solutions. Now, political solutions are important. We should consider being more political as Christians. I think we've made a mistake in not being political enough. Insofar as the politicians are theological, we should be political. We should consider political solutions. But political solutions in and of themselves will not fix the world. A lot of people are looking to the courts. Oh, they're gonna dismiss the tickets. Eventually the courts are gonna rise up and fix all our problems. Well, hopefully they do. If you're in law, become a judge, please help us. (laughs) (laughs) But we shouldn't rely on courts because courts can be corrupted and in many respects already are in our country. Others are looking for a medical solution. If we can just get the right medicine, the pandemic will be over and life will return to normal. Well, then there will be another crisis down the road. So it's good to have competent medical practitioners and to consider medical solutions, but the ultimate solution to our problem is not politics, it's not the courts, it's not medicine, no. We need to work towards making those things better, but what sustains us in our work is looking back at what God has done Enjoying his presence in the moment, his covenantal promises, walking in the spirit, being clear-minded about the future, and taking advantage of the peace that he offers us right now. That's what sustains us for long-term ministry and for long-term faith in God.